You're listening to Season 1, Episode 23 of Diferente. I want to kick things off this week by reading one of our listener reviews. This review is by Clau GF, and they write, Really enjoy how Maribel shares topics that are thought-provoking in a relatable way. I love how her positive energy and sense of humor blends with great interviews and stories. It's a great show to motivate you and make you think about your own impact. Thank you so much for that wonderful review. As a side note, if you've left a review, I promise I have read it. And I thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. I won't be able to read them all out loud on the show, but I do love reading your reviews. It helps me understand the impact that Diferente is having in your life. And it also inspires me to create more of what you want to hear. These reviews also help Diferente get discovered by new listeners. So please keep them coming. If you're listening on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher, press pause right now before you forget and click on those five stars to write a review. With that said, welcome back to the final installment in our Access series. My guest for this episode on access and networking is Wendell Haskins, a dynamic entrepreneur whose expertise has made him a sought-after event producer, panelist, and speaker. He has appeared at the South Africa Gulf Summit, the World Diversity Leadership Summit, and at the United Nations, all while leveraging his vast network of relationship with business professionals and celebrities. Before founding his own lifestyle brand, Wendell served as Director of Artist and Repertoire Artist Development for Island Records' Def Jam Recordings label, where he worked with iconic international acts such as LL Cool J and many others. Talk about a guy with a very different approach to his career. Wendell talks about how he came up in this competitive world and shares great insight on how to cultivate valuable relationships, starting with listening and being your authentic self. Bienvenidos. Welcome to Diferente. My name is Maribel Quesada-Smith. I'm an expert at questioning everything who wants to bring more color into your life. I'll be coming to you every week with a little humor and a mountain of passion to share with you experiences and lessons in life, culture, creativity, and business that will inspire all of us to explore different perspectives. Don't be surprised if you find yourself motivated to shake things up. That's known to be a side effect of the Diferente life, and it's contagious. Now let's get to it. Wendell, bienvenido a Diferente. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for making time to sit with us and chat. I want to give our listeners some background on your personal story before we dive into the topic of access through networking. Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Yeah. Well, I grew up in Patterson, New Jersey. I was actually born in Washington, D.C. and lived in Clinton, Maryland until I was about five years old. What's it like to grow up in New Jersey? Growing up in New Jersey was great. Let me tell you. So first of all, growing up in Clinton, Maryland was was awesome. In Clinton, Maryland, we lived in what was known as like a cul-de-sac community. And it was all these black families, middle class families in the pretty much in the 60s and early 70s that kind of had moved into this development and uh, created a real nice safe haven to community for pretty much all of their black kids, you know, because it was during the 60s and, and 70s. And um, those were very trying times, particularly for mm -hmm. people of color. But that was really my the first impact on what it was like to be a part of a community where everyone trusted one another, people looked out for each other, 
and there seemed to be no hostility or jealousy or anything between people in the community because everyone was working just towards just making it a great community that thrived. And then we moved to Patterson, New Jersey, which was Mm -hmm. another great experience for me because it was a little bit more metropolitan. You know, my dad worked in New York City, so he commuted in and out of the city every day. It was very diverse. So the neighbors across the street from me were the butlers and they were, he was a Baptist minister with a son named Michael, who was my age. And then next to them across the street from me were the Russos, who were an Italian family. And then on the other side of me were the Hoffmans. And I'm going to say this, they were a mixed family, (laughs) but mixed because he was German and the wife was Jewish. So that was actually one of my first experiences on prejudice because her mother did not approve of her marrying a German man. So when my mother was explaining to me why this woman's mother had disassociated with her, I really didn't understand that. I was like, they're two white people and they live together. You know, what, what's the big deal? <laughs> you know, like, you know. So he was not Jewish. He was not Jewish and he was German, right? Yeah. So their family did not approve of her marrying a German man. So um, you grew up in a very diverse environment. So I grew up in a very, very diverse neighborhood and upbringing and school system. That definitely had a uh, left a lasting impression on me and my upbringing, my experience, and how I related to other people. Did that make your transition into adulthood, like specifically going to college, easier? Yeah, well, it made my my transition into college easier, but I went to an HBCU. So I went to Hampton where it was all black, (laughs) you know what I mean? (laughs) So going to Hampton was an experience where you, as black people, you're the majority. That's also a great experience. And you started your career in the entertainment industry after that. Can you talk about what led you to that path? Well, I actually didn't start my career in the entertainment industry. So when I got out of, well, that's what most people think, because that's kind of where pe- most people start my story, right? But, uh, okay. but so I got we're getting out, the real, real story today. <laughs> when I got out of college, I went to work for the United Way of New York City as a fundraiser. I had to do a lot of public speaking in that role, get in front of large audiences and, and entire staffs and talk about the United Way and answer questions. And you're working as a fundraiser, so you're trying to raise money. So that was really my first job experience. And prior to that, I had internships like on Wall Street. You know, mm-hmm. So I worked for American Express Bank and worked in high finance as an intern and kind of really discovered that that's not what I wanted to do. But um, I, you know, have to commute down to the World Trade Center every day and work in American Express Tower, which was a great experience. But I also discovered that I wasn't the type of guy who wanted to sit at a desk and crunch numbers all day, you know. So, so <laughs> you wanted to be around people. Yeah, I like to be around people, and and then not only that, my sister who was three years older than me, she worked in the music business prior to me. So she was the one who really exposed me to what the opportunities were in the music business. When I got out of college, she worked for Jive Records. So she was working with the artists like Boogie Down Productions, which was like KRS-One, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, Glenn Jones. She was breaking all of these new hip hop artists. And of course, the genre was fairly new at that time, but it was cool and it was exciting. You know, I would go to her job and she'd be working on photo shoots and doing music videos and producing events and parties and promoting her different artists. And I just thought that was really cool. And then I I didn't even know what occupations existed in the music business because I'd never really been exposed to 
the business side of the music business before. So it was really through my sister that uh, I became exposed to the opportunities in the music business. And that's actually when I met Puffy. Like most most people, when they tell my story, it's like he's P. Diddy's former roommate. So we did meet <laughs> around that time, but we were both out of college. We didn't know each other during college. We just knew each other from the music scene and going to the same events. Puffy, myself, and my best friend that I grew up with named Jack Benson, who later went on to become a producer at MTV. We, you know, we had a, a three-bedroom apartment and then lived together. This and must have been long before J-Lo. <laughs> way before that. It's funny you should say that because I knew Jennifer through, Rosie Perez was a good friend of mine. Rosie and I uh-huh. dated, so I, I met Jennifer around that time. Yes, way before um, he and uh, Jennifer dated. <laughs> He wasn't even Diddy at that time. He was just puffy and he was just he was just an ambitious guy at Uptown Records on the rise. So he wasn't even a household name at that time. That's awesome. <laughs> I was going to ask you who was there along the way to help you start building connections as you were developing in your profession. No one does it alone, right? So who can you think of that was there along the way as you were growing in your career that helped you out, put you on, introduced you to somebody? and made a difference in your connections? There are a number of people. My sister, I can tell you, was definitely key for me. I was a younger brother, so that kind of opened some doors. I had to pursue them on my own, and it was kind of up to me as to what I did with them, but I was in some of the right places that I was able to meet people and develop relationships on my own. And then there was a guy named Paris Davis who was helpful to me during the, in, the, uh, in those years. I'd started a music showcase of my own called New York Live. And uh, that's really how I was able to meet a lot of different people in the music business by creating something of my own. All of the young music executives would come and showcase their new acts there. So it's actually like one of the first places that Mary J. Blige ever performed because Puffy was my friend and my roommate. So I would have these music showcases and I had a couple of other partners that already worked in the music business. I didn't work in the music business at the time. I was still working at the United Way, but I was trying to create something that would give me the access, right, that I needed Mm -hmm. to the music business. During that time, there were just lots of new young Black executives that were getting the opportunity to work in the music business. And we were all supportive of of each other and kind of knew what others were doing at different major labels and independent labels. So it was really the like the blossoming of a culture. I was asking for some opportunities to do some artist development and like styling with their artists because everybody kind of thought like I was just cool dressing, cool flavor <laughs> guy that was like around puffy all the time. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> like, who is this guy? And then I, I actually went and put together a portfolio of my own, never having done a photo shoot at all. I did a photo shoot with myself and a friend. And I went mm-hmm. to my barber and I had him give us haircuts and I went and purchased a whole lot of different clothes that I would, you know, I say I would make your artist look like this, but it was just me and my boy, like in Central Park doing a photo shoot of our own, trying <laughs> to look as fresh as we could. And I would say, look, I, this is what I would, how I would dress LL Cool J or Method Man yeah. or whoever. My sister probably gave me one of my first opportunities to style a, a, an act of hers, a guy by the name of Ahmad. That might've been my first photo shoot. And he had this song, Back in the Day, I'm Not a Kid Anymore. I don't know if you remember that song, but I remember way back when. So, um, he, I'm not sure I do. <laughs> he was, yeah, it might be a little bit before your time, but you can Google it. It'll come up. Um, so, I'll check it out. You know, I got my foot in the door by just 
creating my own portfolio without ever having styled a group or having images that were published images or anything. It wasn't like I had a body of work to present, Mm -hmm. but I had to put something together when people said, could you have a portfolio? You have any pictures and stuff that you've done? So I just started out with doing something on my own and that got me my first job. And then that first job got me my first pictures to put in my first portfolio. And then next thing you know, I'm I'm having meetings at Def Jam about styling some of the biggest artists on their roster. So you went from being a United Way fundraiser to styling celebrities. Yeah. You know, when I left United Way, I basically became a freelance type person, right? So I went and, um, Worked on M- MTV productions as a production assistant, just learning the business and, you know, getting in the MTV system to be able to have access to productions and things like that. So, mm-hmm. and then, you know, from those projects, I ended up working with Def Jam artists and working with Hype Williams. And then Hype was the biggest video director at that time. And I was kind of plugged into a mainstream director then. Honestly, it sounds like you are a guy who, when presented with an opportunity, does not waste it because you were introduced to different people and you could have just kept on doing what you were doing. But instead, you came up with creative ways to develop your network and then come up with different ventures for yourself that led you down this path. Yeah, no, that's fairly accurate. And what I can say, what what I've done in most instances, my opportunities have come as a result of something I created myself. You know what I mean? So when I got into the music business and got to know people because I created New York Live and that gave me the platform and the access that I needed to meet people and to establish a name for myself in the music industry. Would appear in Billboard magazine and I'd be at all of the music labels having meetings about getting acts to perform. And then then next thing you know, label heads are trying to contact me because they want their artists to perform and they want their own night at New York Live, you know, but that was something that I created. Did you ever hear no when you were first starting out? I'm sure I did. I'm sure I've heard. I mean, you don't get, obviously you don't get every job that you want, but I was fortunate that I knew some good people that really believed in me that would give me an opportunity to do what I said I could do when they really didn't have any belief, any reason to believe that I couldn't. So they, they took chances on me to let me do a small photo shoot or a small music video. And, and then I did well and then got opportunities for other jobs. So it was more having to overcome other people's concerns about me knowing what I was doing rather than them saying no, because I, I had relationships with the people who were giving me the opportunities. But you were proving yourself with your dedication and the work that you were putting in. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then you got into the golf world. When did you decide to get into golf? So around 1998, the late late 90s, a friend of mine introduced me to golf. He owned and ran this, the hottest restaurant in the 90s called the Shark Bar in New York. And the Shark Bar was the spot. It was like a soul food spot. All the cool people went there, stars, celebs. It was real cool, small spot on Amsterdam and like 74th Street. And um, so I met Michael and he played, his name was Michael Van. He played a little golf and he, we developed a great relationship and he wanted me to go on this golf trip with him for his 40th birthday. And uh, I learned how to play a little, you know, went to Chelsea Piers and started getting lessons. And I kind of, I liked it. I was like, this is cool. You know, I, I can, I can dig this. Went on a trip with him and I liked everything about the 
lifestyle, the competition, the dressing a little cool in the cool clothes and whatnot. And I was like, <laughs> I like this. This is cool, you know? So being a promoter myself, I, at one, I, I started reading all about golf. Ben Hogan's fundamentals of the golf swing and the history of the masters. And I was particularly curious about what the history was of the black people in the sport. I'm like, I'm reading all this stuff. I'm like, where would the, where the, how did the black folks get them? I mean, there were all these people before a tiger, I'm sure. <laughs> so I read this book called Forbidden Fairways and that pretty much changed the game for me. You know, it was all about the history of African-Americans and golf. I read about Teddy Rhodes and Bill Spiller and Charlie Sifford and Lee Elder and Renee Powell and Bill Powell and Bartholomew, who did the golf course architecture in Louisiana, like all of this great history of African-Americans in the, in the sport. And I was like, wow, man, I bet all of these people that I know who play golf, they probably don't even know half of this. And one of the things that resonated with me was that a black man had invented and patented the golf tee. And it was in 1899 that he got the patent. So here we are going on 1999. And I'm saying to myself, wow, this is like the the invention of the golf tee is like 100 years old. Like I'm out here playing golf, just starting to get into the game. And this little golf tee was invented by a black man. Man, our history predates all of this and goes back to the late 1800s. So the interesting fact was that George F. Grant invented and patented the golf tee. And then several years later, a white guy by the name of William Lowell patented another design of the golf tee called the Ready Tee. It was like a wooden tee that he painted red and he was able to get people to play with it. So it was mm-hmm. the difference between the marketing of it, right? But, yeah. that, but that doesn't mean that he did it first. So when people credit William Lowell, I always say, well, the original tee was invent- invented by George Grant. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I was like, man, I'm going to make some t-shirts called the original t-shirt and I'm going to put George Grant's picture on the front of it and the the original patent of the golf tee on the back of it. So I did these t-shirts and I called them the original t-shirt and I was just getting into golf and going crazy. I mean, I'm sure you know what it means to go crazy about golf because... (laughs) (laughs) A little bit. A little bit, right. (laughs) But I was just totally consumed. I was like, man, this history, like people don't know this history. And I'm like, I know all of these NBA players are playing and all these entertainers are playing and like my friends are starting to play and I'm starting to turn all of my friends in New York on the golf. And I was like, but it's important that we know this history that exists and claim it and be proud of it and then and then market it. So, you know, we have our spot in the game. You know what I mean? So it just consumed me. So being a, already being like a promoter doing parties in New York City and in New York Live and all those things that I'd already done, I was like, man, I should start a golf tournament. <laughs> I should just do a golf tournament because, you know, from my research, those things go on forever. You know what I'm saying? They're like year after year, you know. So in 2000, I put together my first golf tournament. I had about probably about 80, 90 people playing, raised a bunch of money from all of my friends that worked in marketing and all of these different record companies and stuff that I knew. And they supported mm-hmm. it. So my first golf tournament was like, it was like the music industry <laughs> golf tournament. You know what I mean? <laughs> like yeah. all of my sponsors were music companies. They were music people. Yeah. yeah. And then I did this research and found out who I wanted to give the money to, which was Bill Dickey, because I read all about Bill Dickey. And then I mm. called Bill Dickey up on the phone and said, hey, you know, my name is Wendell Haskins. I'm about to start this tournament. Would you be willing to be the recipient of the funds? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, so my first year. <laughs> did a tournament and gave Bill Dickey like probably like $7,500, I believe, or something like that. So he and I were friends after that. <laughs> so um, that's from starting the original T golf classic 
that began my entree into the whole golf scene. I'm always talking about the original T tournament and I'm still trying to elevate the tournament. You know, it never stops. And you just had it this year, right? I just had it this year. It was just July 22nd. And um, how much did you race? Well, I'm going to tell you what we did this year, which I gave a platform for the pro golfers, so for some aspiring tour players to play. So some of them you're probably familiar with, Wyatt Worthington, yes. Kevin Hall, Lewis Kelly, and uh, Christian Heavens. So we, we, I put up a purse for them to play, a $20,000 purse for them to play for. So that oh, was our okay. accomplishment this year to involve the pros. And now BMW is the title sponsor, you know, along with the other supporting sponsors, you know, the NBA, who's still been with us for 19 years. Do you have a specific cost every year that you either donate to or you raise funds? It used to be Bill Dickey. I used to give money to every year. and But the year we honored Renee Powell, we gave money to the Clearview, Clearview Legacy Foundation. In one year, we gave money to the uh, Golf to End Cancer. I mean, generally, I'll pick mm-hmm. you know some kind of an organization that we contribute funds to. It feels like a homecoming every year now because of the people who come and participate in it year after year, the new people that come from all different nationalities and ethnicities and so forth. So I'm really proud of the way it has developed. We're going into the 20th year now. It'll be 20 years. And after the original tea was created, how long after that did you get the job with the PGA of America? Because basically you got into the golf world and then you leveraged your way to a job with the PGA of America. That's pretty cool. It's not even that I leveraged it, but I was actually identified from that work that I was doing with the original tea event. So okay. a gentleman by the name of Anthony Spikes who I met along the way when I was trying to put together um, a business plan for the original T apparel line. And he worked at Citibank, I believe, at that time. And Spikes became a really good friend and mentor in golf because, you know, I was just getting into golf. So we developed a nice relationship. Then he started coming to the original T event and he was impressed by that. And he said, man, Hassan, you know what you're doing here is like really growing the game. So Spike said, man, you need to meet this guy, Pete Bavacqua, man. He's a friend of mine, but he, and he's a chief business officer over at the USGA. So Spikes arranged a meeting. And that's how I ended up meeting Pete. And um, this is a short story, but a couple of years down the line <laughs> through Pete and I keeping in touch and him following some of the things that I was doing, he got pegged to become the CEO of PGA of America and then tapped me on the shoulder and said, why don't you come down and see if there's anything that interests you that uh, we might be able to bring you under the PGA umbrella. So that's kind of how that happened through networking and relationships and my experience and the track record of things that I had done that allowed me to have that opportunity. That's quite the trajectory. (laughs) From United Way to the PGA of America. you yeah i'm talking to you what are you doing with this podcast are you sharing it with your friends because one of the best ways to let somebody know that you care about them is by sharing thought inspiring content with them like this podcast where we share stories and experiences that expose us to different perspectives here are three easy ways to share the show you can take a screenshot of this episode and post it on social media text it directly to anyone in your contact list or you can also send them the link to our website, diferentepodcast.com. Voila! Super simple. If you like Diferente, the best way to support us is by sharing it, sharing it, and sharing it some more. Now let's get on with the show. Now you've left the PGA of America. What are you working on now? Right now I'm working on Original Tea. 
That's what I was doing before PGA of America. I'm still working on the original T platform, working on elevating black golf, so to speak, and the original T golf classic. So working on some partnerships with that. I have some things in development right now. And yeah, I was going to ask, what's your long-term vision? <laughs> I can't really talk about the things that are in development right now until they come to a little bit deeper fruition. Okay. But uh, I'm excited about them. So you have successfully leveraged your vast network of relationships with business professionals and celebrities to build a brand, which I would say is basically your name. I mean, people know you, they like you, and they trust you. Those are the three principles of great marketing, which, again, you have successfully achieved. So what is your secret to being a great builder of relationships? One is listening and being my authentic self. I always try to be my most genuine self and listen to the needs of other folks. You know, when you come to the Original T Golf Classic, one of the things about our honoree is that they always feel like they're truly appreciated because of the way I totally dedicate the event to their success and the, and the feeling that they get when they come participate in the Original T Golf Classic and the way the people feel when they're there. I mean, I try to be a good host and be mindful of how I would like to be treated and how I would want to feel and the kind of experience that I would want to have. And I try to mm -hmm. give that to all of the people that come into the fold. What kind of advice would you give to someone who's starting to develop their network? What would you say they should start with? You know, be conversational with people. I would say if you're starting your network, don't exclude anyone from a good conversation and sharing ideas with them to a certain extent because you never know who you're talking to or who you might be able to establish some kind of a relationship with and do business with from any walk of life. I spend time, mm -hmm. I talk to kids. I talk to older people, men, women, golfers, non-golfers, because I want all of those people to be engaged in the experience. So I want all of them to feel welcome. And I feel like all of them have something to contribute. So when you're meeting new people or you're going into a new environment, no matter how uncomfortable you may feel or like this isn't the place where you find, just strike up conversation with people. You never know who you're going to meet and what you might have in common and, and how you might be able to find common ground with someone. So you have to be a good listener and then be willing to tell your story and then have some kind of a purpose in your own conversation. Whether it's about you or your platform or what your, your endeavor is that you might want to get someone engaged in, be willing to talk about it and talk about it clearly and concisely and be able to get your point across to folks and certainly be conversational with people. So meeting somebody is one thing, but also how do you build a significant relationship with someone after you've networked and met them? How do you follow up after that? Well, it depends on what you're trying to follow up about. I mean, you can meet someone and not have any intention or anything in mind to do with them for years to come, but have them in your Rolodex, just follow up when you, with, when you meet someone and exchange information with them and you never know. In my case, I have an event, right? So I know that I always want to welcome people into an event. So if I meet them, you know, I'll tell them, if you play golf or you're just interested in coming and hanging out, give me your email. So, you know, I'll keep you abreast of like what I'm doing. And maybe you might be interested in coming to something at some point. When Whether they come or not, they get the information. And it could be, yeah. I've had people who say, oh, I get your emails all the time, man. But I just, they might not come until seven years later. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but 
nowadays there's so many ways to keep your Rolodex up to date and healthy. You keep using the word Rolodex. <laughs> I did, uh, well, well, the Rolodex is an old term, but yeah, my, uh, I know. My, I keep uh, thinking of like the millennials who are going to be like, "Wait, what?" Yeah, is well, that? a Rolodex <laughs> is just a term, but my so I, so I, I'm referring to my eye contact, right? So <laughs> we know, right? So my eye contact now is when I get someone's email or their business card, I automatically go and put it in my eye contact, not my Rolodex anymore, right? <laughs> Into my eye contact. I get it. See? And that's why it's important that I respect someone of your generation, right? Because when you tell me, you know, I'm old school with my Rolodex, I know and then when I have conversation with someone under 30 or... Oh, I'm not under 30. I'm, I'm playing myself when I say my Rolodex, right? So... So I'm dating myself. That's okay. There's no school like the old school. It's awesome. I love it. Because I I do know what a Rolodex is, but I keep thinking of like the 20-some-year-olds that are listening. They're going to be like, I'm sorry, what? Okay, so what do the millennials say now? Where do they keep all of their... I I think they keep it in their iCloud or their... um, In their iCloud? Or their Gmail, you know, contact list. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I keep it in my phone. (laughs) Well, the Rolodex is an old, you know... It's just a, it, it, you know what it is. It's just, a, I know it's exactly just the terminology. It it's like the a Kleenex. You know what I mean? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I just had to call you out on that because I think it's so hilarious that <laughs> I, I do it all the time too. I'll say things when I'm talking to younger people and they'll look at me square. Well, you know what? That's another thing too. Like even with the original tea event, like I realized the importance of keeping the event fresh and new. I mean, I had my, some of my younger cousins come and volunteer. It, it's awesome. And then, you know, the party we have Saturday night and meeting Anthony Anderson and the celebs and stuff that are there. I mean, it's everything that they can Snapchat and Instagram and do all of that stuff at as well. You know what I mean? So my thing is like, how do we keep them engaged and then amplify that? Because we can rely on the talent in the black golf community to do bigger events within the community. You know what I mean? And Everything doesn't have to be a PGA Tour event for it to be amazingly successful and for these guys to make money. If we can bring our own audience, it's just like how BET was created, right? And how rap music was created. First, we do it for our own audience. You know what I mean? Because it resonates with that audience per se, right? So, and then as as the, the culture and the music or whatever it is grows and grows and grows, it becomes either like what we call crossover or more mainstream, right? Well, we can do that in golf. If we create the right atmosphere and get the right support, we can have a great golf tournament with a nice, sizable purse with all of the aspiring black golfers out there who are trying to make it to the next level and do something that's really cool and entertaining and and lucrative. What would you say is the best decision you've ever made when it comes to networking? (laughs) I don't think I consciously say I'm going to go set out to network. I mean, it just has to be the way you operate. You have to operate knowing that relationships are valuable, period. You know, so the best decision that I've made was just to be myself and be personable and to never take any relationship for granted, whether that be a young person, old person, wealthy person, a person from a less fortunate background. Everybody is valuable. So the best decision I've made is really to treat all people like they're valuable. And that's pretty much it. I mean, it's kind of how I would try to go about how I operate is like everybody is valuable and has something to offer or contribute. And there's value in every relationship that you can have with someone. 
What is a big no-no when it comes to building relationships or networking with people? You don't badmouth to other people. If you have a negative experience with someone in your network or any kind of a negative experience or even thoughts and feelings about someone, you, you pretty much keep those, those thoughts to yourself or, or address people directly. You never say, mm-hmm. oh, such and such. He's, yeah, I mean, he's a jerk. He's a baby. Be careful because you never know how those things can affect you and your other relationships. And if you have a problem or an issue with someone within your network, you need to address them directly and not through and around other people. Right. That's very powerful. Do you feel like building a network and supporting each other is essential to growing in your career? Oh, building a network and supporting one another another is critical. I mean, it really is critical. You first have to rely on what your foundation is and make that valuable to your foundation. And then you can grow. Otherwise, you're in jeopardy of losing what you've established if you don't establish it on something that's solid, that is real to your foundation of folks. Well, I have two more questions for you. What is your passion and how do you define success? (laughs) My passion is to really move culture forward. I mean, that's my passion, no matter what that is. In music business, it was creating artists that change people's lives and touch people in a way that they either haven't been touched before or just moving the culture forward, right? Through music and song and dance and giving people things that they can relate to. So I like giving people things that they can relate to that move the culture forward. How do you define success? And I define sex success by living living and being true to yourself. Success is enjoying your loved ones, your family, and doing it in a way where you can support yourself and the people that you love. I mean, that's success to me. As long as I'm doing that and following my passion and able to support my family and the people that I love and have the freedom to be able to do those things within reason at will, that's a success to me. I hope you've enjoyed this first series on Diferente. If you've learned something new or the discussions we've had during these past six episodes have helped you in any way, please let me know in the reviews or on our social media pages. The links are in the show notes. By the way, one of our listeners asked me the other day to explain what the show notes are. (laughs) To be fair, that is a great question for anyone who is new to the podcast world. So I'm going to explain this. The show notes are the same thing as the episode description. Maybe I should just call them that instead. Anyway, you just need to click on the episode description to read the show notes. Also, if you're wondering how you can share Diferente with other people, you can send them a link to the show or a particular episode directly from the application you're listening on. They all have this option. Or you can tell people to visit our website, diferentepodcast.com. All right. Before I wrap up the episode, I really want to leave you with this. Take chances on yourself. Don't be the first person to tell yourself no and be willing to get out of your comfort zone to talk to new people because remember that there's value in every relationship that you build. Sometimes the value is not necessarily immediately apparent and it might not even be career related, but people come into our lives for a reason. Sometimes, unfortunately, only long enough to inspire us. So keep that in mind. All right, I'm done talking for now, but please don't forget to vote next Tuesday in the midterms. I want to see those I voted stickers on social media. Unfortunately, you won't see me wearing one. We'll get to that later. In the meantime, I'll be over here like one of those crazy show moms living vicariously through you. 
So no pressure, but my happiness depends on your boat. But all jokes aside, we are teetering on the cusp of momentous change. So think of all the people that came before you to make it possible for you to get to this point in your life where you could exercise your right to vote and make them proud. This episode was produced thanks largely in part to a group of very dedicated individuals who appreciate diversity and appreciate putting together great work. Thank you, Mauricio Mosso, editor. Thank you, Keegan Stromberg, for the original theme and the music for Diferente. No one does it alone. So thank you to everyone who inspires me every day. So I leave you with what inspired me today. A little bit of Marvin Gaye does the soul a lot of good. Don't punish me with brutality. Talk to me so you can see. 